Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the investigator who is reviewing the violence at Pride from this past June wants to take a look at Hamilton's police culture. Today is the eve of the UK election, and we'll get an update on what we can expect. And the Kuzma, or NAFTA deal, whichever you want to call it, took an important step toward ratification yesterday. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The investigator that is reviewing the pride violence that took place last summer, in June specifically, uh, wants to take a look at Hamilton police culture. Now, this is good news for an awful lot of the people that have expressed some concern about what happened and probably why things happened the way they did uh, during those uh, couple of days last summer. Joining us to talk about this is Cameron Crow. She was a former municipal candidate, of course, but also a community member uh, and uh, somebody who's been very, very outspoken about what needs to be done here. Cameron, first of all, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad you could be on today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about the the, uh, the setup of this. The, the uh, individual we're talking about here is a lawyer from Toronto who was actually appointed uh, to look into this. Uh, and, and obviously, anytime there's going to be any sort of an investigation, uh, I guess the first concern and probably the major concern are the terms of reference. And now we've got a, a pretty good idea uh, where he's going and why he's doing this now. How do you feel about uh, about the direction that this that the investigation might be taking? I think that it was good that the reviewer met with folks from the communities to discuss the different aspects of the review. So the terms of reference were in a draft form, and folks from his team met um, with members of Two-Spirit and LGBTQI plus communities and chatted with them about the draft terms. I'm not overly enthusiastic. I'd say uh, I echo what some others have said uh, about being uh, skeptical about the outcomes here, because this review is really about recommendations, right? It's not like uh, the independent reviewer can say, and I command you to do the following, right? Um, it's about um, recommendations made. I am uh, pleased to see that there is some discussion about police culture in there, so it's not just limited to discussing the sort of technical aspects of what happened at the Pride event, but it's also looking at how does this uh, the police force's culture lead to that as well. Well, so this is... <laughs> I mean, I, you can do the best of, of all possible investigations, I guess, but it's implementation, I guess, that's got you really worried, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're putting the trust back in the same, frankly, uh, old guard council folks on the Hamilton Police Services Board who haven't really been sort of willing to listen to the recommendations that have been given to them so far. I mean, even this meeting that's happening on Thursday, uh, I went to some lengths to try and get them to allow public to delegate and to extend the deadline for those delegations, and they weren't interested in doing that. So the the kind of uh, recommendations that can be made here um, could be very damning recommendations in the end, but it's going to be up to the Police Services Board as to what they do with those recommendations, whether they implement those recommendations, and it looks like no matter what the public says to the board, the board's going to do what it wants to do. I mean, some of these things are, you know, kind of like, you know, apple pie and, and, and philosophical things. You know, uh, it's important that every appropriate measure be taken to prevent such hatred and violence from ever taking place against the LGBTQ community again. Uh, noble thing to say, but at the same time, is there going to be an exploration as to why what happened in June actually happened? Yeah, it's a really outside the scope, I think, of an investigation like this. I mean, I had said that myself when I met with the investigators to say, you know, I think this needs to be limited a little bit in terms of um, what you can do. You can't speak on behalf of marginalized communities. You can't tell Pride organizers how to run their event. Um, and I don't think that's what this review is ultimately about. It's ultimately about um, the police and their conduct. 
Um, and I hope that's what the focus remains. I hope that they follow through on investigating police culture, I think, because as soon as they do that, Bill, they're going to have to look back for more than a few minutes, right, before what happened at Pride and say, hey, there's a lot that's been going on here in Hamilton with police and marginalized communities. Look at some of the history here that underpins this. And I think once they start doing that, it's going to become really, really clear that there's a huge problem in Hamilton with policing and marginalized communities. What are they going to find if they look under that rock? I'm not really an expert on the total history of everything that's happened here in Hamilton. I've only lived here for five years. But in my time here, I can say that um, we can look quickly back at things like uh, the carding case that Matthew Green had against the police, right, and those kinds of issues. Um, We can look at um, issues where um, the police did or didn't respond properly um, when called um, at Pry, but other times that's happened as well. Um, I know that Lila Miklos has talked a lot about um, raids and different things that happened earlier. Uh, so the different kinds of statements that the chiefs made on this program, Bill, um, the different kinds of things the mayor has said in public about um, marginalized communities and pride, what's going on now um, You know, with the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, all kinds of different things that are happening here that relate to police, because unfortunately the mayor has, uh, as far as I'm concerned, muddied the situation by remaining as chair of the Police Services Board um, and made lots of public statements that frankly draw him into the controversy uh, quite a bit. So it's it's been made. A, quite a, a large scope in terms of um, who's going to be looked at here and who's going to be discussed. And one of the things the review says is that basically the chief and the police services board and people from the police service will be compelled to participate. And so will um, they be able to be compelled to sort of give documents as well to make sure that uh, if the reviewer needs something, they have access to it. With that in mind, how much input are you and, and others in the community going to have into this? I'm not sure. I know the reviewer has committed to speaking with as many people as possible, but I don't know what weight that's going to have. Ultimately, that's up to the reviewer to decide. I was a bit troubled by some of the language in the report. I'll say it kind of started framing people with labels, right? So it was saying things like, um, you know, the folks who were opposing pride, um, so the pride protesters they called them, encounter protesters, and all kinds of different names that were used in there. Um, Anarchist was thrown in there by the reviewer. And I worry that that kind of rhetoric, again, is going down a certain lane, because every time I've heard the chief of police speak about pride, he makes great pains to ensure that he tries to tie this back to Lock Street and tie this back to all kinds of other things that have happened in Hamilton's history, as if he's making some point here um, to ensure that that's the narrative we're following. And so when I saw some of that language in the review, I thought to myself, hmm, I hope it doesn't go down that road as well, where they're not trying to just, uh, you know, lump everything together here to say, well, this has just all been caused by, caused by anarchists or something. I think it's a strange way to go. So is there a concern here, and, and by the way, we're going to talk about the uh, the Committee for Civic Inclusion a little bit later on in the program, since Council is going to be, I guess, making some sort of determination about that when they meet later on today. Uh, is there some concern here, though, Cameron, that, that the, your, the victims may be victimized again here with this kind of reporting and this kind of investigation? Well, I'll put it to you this way, Bill. I've talked to some people, and we all share the same kind of concern. How much labor can this community and marginalized communities do to... Um, to sort of solve this problem. People have continued to testify over and over and over again to the police services in public about what they want to do, and now are being asked to go through an independent review. It's a lot of labor for folks to do, uh, to continue to come in, tell their story, tell it again and again and again, and not to see results, as long as people are being compensated for their time. And so I think people have to think about that in the larger picture here. Who's doing the continual work of improving these programs and services? 
when we were at that one meeting uh, that happened with the uh, members of different marginalized communities and the police, the uh, the sort of sentiment there was, look, you already all know what the issues are, and they admitted they knew what the issues were. And so we said, why aren't you doing something about it? And to me, in part, that's what the problem with this whole process is. I'm happy it's happening. I'm happy that some of the terms in there are going to investigate what's happening with the culture of policing, and I really hope that in the end we get some concrete results here. I mean, Scott Bergman um, and his folks were responsible for the independent review of the Bruce MacArthur stuff that happened in Toronto. So there is some possibility he's going to come back with some really incisive and critical points here that I think the police could benefit from taking up. But we're going through this process again of really having said this all a hundred times, the police knowing exactly what they have to do to fix things, and then continuing to go down this road. So I'm not sure that an independent review is going to get um, the Hamilton Police Service to change their behavior. I think that the only way that's going to happen is if it's mandated by law. Well, and therein lies the problem. I mean, it's one thing to come out with one or ten or a hundred recommendations, but uh, if, if they're just going to say thanks a lot for your time and thanks for coming out, uh, that's one thing. But there doesn't seem to be, at least in the, the, the reporting I've seen on this, Cameron, there doesn't seem to be a commitment yet from Hamilton Police Services, or for City Council for that matter, to uh, suggest that they're going to embrace and actually implement any of these suggestions when they do come forth. Well, I will say one thing that I think is really promising about the report um, that addresses that issue is, and something I've said publicly a few times now, I think it was really important that when the results of the review came out and these recommendations were made public, that they weren't first given to the Hamilton Police Services Board so they could review them and then have a chance to come up with a PR statement, but that those recommendations were released publicly at the same time and everyone had access to them immediately. And they seem to have committed to that in the document by saying the public and the board will get them no, uh, so no sooner than April 30th of 2020. That's not only at least a couple of months before Pride, but it means that there is a chance for the public to immediately ask for accountability from the board, right? And so I think that that's a good thing. I think that it, me- it means the public will be more engaged in the process and can try to um, push for those recommendations and be implemented as well. Um, depending on what the recommendations are, they may let other people take up action, right? So uh, there may be some recommendations that are very clear that spell out that, uh, you know, the recommender or the reviewer feels that the police have done the wrong thing, and a case like that um, allows others to follow up. So it could be the grounds for um, holding the police to account, either legally or otherwise. But when you look at some of these points that, uh, that Mr. Bergman has talked about here, they're going to be the frame of reference for this. Uh, I'm getting the feeling from your comments this morning, Cameron, that that you could probably write this report for them right now. In other words, uh, you're not expecting any new ground to be broken here. I mean, it's going to be basically a regurgitation of things that you've been talking about and other people in the community have been talking about for quite some time. I think that, frankly, it will be. I think that um, many people in marginalized communities have said all the things that are going to be said about police now is the reviewer going to put them in more professional terms, um, more legal terms, um, in a recommendation um, more perhaps accepted by others because it's quote-unquote independent. Yes, I think that's what the value of this is. It's, it's perceived to be coming from someone independent. But I continue to say and will always say that if you would like an answer to this problem, I like an answer to the solution, then you go and find those folks who are most impacted by it. You talk to them, you take their advice, and you implement the recommendations. And all of that has been given to the police time and time again for decades in Hamilton. And I am 
uh, going to remain slightly um, optimistic that this will encourage some of them because it'll be speaking in their language. I mean, when the chief came on your show with a binder um, quoting the law, uh, that told me sort of what he's concerned about and the kinds of things he thinks are important and the voices he's interested in hearing about. And so perhaps hearing from a lawyer will convince him more than hearing from marginalized communities. Well, because, I mean, one of the things here they talk about is, uh, is you know, what kind of programs and what kind of uh, training or education might be necessary uh, to institute what they call bias-free policing. Now, now, you know and I know that there has been sensitivity training that's gone on with Hamilton Police Services uh, for you. Deirdre Pike, among others, of course, have spoken a number of times to, to various uh, elements of, of police services about this. Uh, are you suggesting that's not resonating with officers, or is it frontline? Is it is it the administration? Where do you think the, the, the problem seems to be, the concern? I think the problem comes from the top. You have the chair of the police services board saying, I can't comment on anything here, um, when we all know that the Hamilton Police Services Board is free to give their opinions or their recommendations to the chief of police anytime they want. In fact, the review says that in paragraph 8. So we have someone denying um, the ability to even criticize or to make compliment, con- sorry, uh, comments to the police. And then you have the police chief saying exactly the same thing about his own officers. Oh, I can't do anything. I can't set a tone. I can't interfere once charges have been laid. These things the general public all know are not true. And so I think that um, there has to be some some kind of accountability mechanisms here within policing. And we have to have people in positions of leadership who are willing to say, you know what, this was actually wrong. This thing actually happened and was a problem. Um, instead, we have kind of an endless talking in circles uh, about what they can't do and a never, not a willingness to ever say what they can do. So I know I've heard the chief and the mayor continue to say, we're limited by the following law. and We can't say something because... Uh, the law prevents us from doing so. And my constant refrain, and many people have joined in this refrain, is what can you do? It can't be nothing. Um, and so far that seems to be all they're willing to do. Uh, to that point, by the way, I, I just want to ma- remind our listeners that the chief is going to be on here. We're going to do another town hall. Probably, I think it's in a week or so that he's going to be on here. And certainly we want to address uh, these recommendations and these parameters and uh, just see. We can't obviously get, make a determination as to how they're going to respond until we actually see the report itself. I got about thirty seconds left. You you sound skeptical, but is there is there any shred of optimism here that that maybe this is is actually going to move you in the direction and move police services and the police services board in the direction that you think they should be taking? That's really up to the chief and the Hamilton Police Services Board whether or not they're going to take these recommendations seriously and implement them, and whether or not the recommendations you know find in favor of of the things that marginalized communities have been saying. I think that Scott has an opportunity here to do some deep and meaningful engagement and to find out what uh, what he doesn't know about what happened, because he's not from here. He wasn't here during the time that Hamilton Pride was happening, and this will be, in part for him, a bit of a learning experience, I think. And so his reviewers will be able to have a chat with those folks, find out what happened, and choose whether or not they're going to believe that, because part of this is a fact-finding mission for them. They're going to be coming in uh, and asking kinds of questions and determining what did happen from their perspective. So I think the outcome of this ha- could have an, uh, a positive or a negative impact, and I think it is an opportunity for some of the record to be set straight, uh, but ultimately this is up to the police to decide what they're going to do with the information and recommendations. And on that point, I don't have a lot of faith, Bill. A lot more to come on this uh, in the days and weeks ahead, Cameron. Thanks so much for the time today. We'll stay in touch. 
Thanks, Bill. Take care. Cameron Croce, of course, a concerned citizen, as we all are, uh, about uh, trying to find some resolution to uh, some of the concerns that have been raised. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is the day before the big day in the U.K. Uh, federal election, of course, is going on tomorrow. And, uh, well, the reporting we're seeing is saying the polls could be tightening a little bit. Boris Johnson, of course, uh, called the election uh, some weeks ago. Joining us to talk about this is Redmond Shannon, Global News in London. Uh, good morning, uh, I guess good afternoon where you are. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Redmond. Thanks. Good morning to you, Bill. What's uh, The reporting I'm seeing here, sees, said, I, I, we've always been hearing, I guess, ever since this election was called, that uh, the Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party uh, had a significant lead. I'm hearing that's narrowing now. What, what are you hearing on the street? Yeah, well, it has it is narrowing, and it's all um, it is all relative though, because they had a, a very healthy lead, and the latest poll, probably the last poll now that we've we've had just last night before this last day of the campaign, indicates that the uh, if it's exactly right, then the Conservatives will be set for a small majority, maybe around twenty eight seats. So that's enough. That that's really what Boris Johnson needs, but with the margin of error indicates that it might not be a majority at all. So he could win far more or he could just fall short of that overall majority. And that spells big trouble for Boris Johnson because without an overall majority, he probably, he almost certainly cannot get uh, this Brexit deal that he renegotiated with the EU through because no other party is going to team up with him. The Brexit party almost certainly won't win any seats. So all the other parties, all the other MPs in the House of Commons will be against this deal uh, that he has renegotiated. So Boris Johnson is in deep trouble if that happens. But the the betting indicates right now the Brit- the British bookies are still saying that Boris is likely to win that majority come tomorrow night. Yeah, and there is, is the conundrum. Obviously, if they, I don't want to, well, we won't go down that road just yet. Let's, let's see what the results are. But a minority government, which is essentially what tied the Conservatives' hands anyway, wasn't it? I mean, even going back to Prime Minister May uh, when, before Boris Johnson actually took over, uh, there was there was a move move forward, of course, because of the referendum. But uh, if you don't have the votes, it's not going to get done, and uh, we could have another hung Parliament if he ends up with a slight minority again. Well, exactly. And the issue with Theresa May is that she had a small majority and then she called an election 2017 and it went spectacularly wrong. And she ended up with a minority, had to rely on the 10 MP uh, Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland who have very much their own agenda about how Brexit would play out. And that really complicated things even further. But what also complicated things is that within the Conservative Party, there were splits about Brexit. Within the Labour Party, there were splits about Brexit, the two main parties. So it wasn't along party lines. It will be after this election far more along party lines because... Uh, especially in the Conservative side, all the MPs who are standing, all the candidates who are standing rather, will be very much falling into line, almost every one of them. So you could therefore know that if Boris Johnson gets his majority, almost every single one of those MPs will be towing the line with him come uh, after after tomorrow night. What about the mindset of the voters themselves? I I know that Boris Johnson wants this to be an election about Brexit, but you know, an election of, of this scope, 650 seats that are up for grabs right now, uh, and, and the people in London as opposed to the people in, in, you know, in Liverpool as opposed to the people in Edinburgh, uh, could have different issues. Is, is, is Brexit the main thrust? Is it what's going to motivate people to vote uh, for one party over the other tomorrow? 
I think more so than the 2017 election, yes, it really will be motivated by uh, Brexit. But people have very big issues too. There is a big issue with housing here. The National Health Service is under strain. Even this week, that was a major issue with this photo emerging of a four-year-old boy with suspected pneumonia sleeping Mm -hmm. on jackets on the floor of a hospital. And then you had... um, accounts and social media claiming it was fake. You had Boris Johnson taking a a mobile phone from the hand of a TV reporter and putting the reporter's phone in his pocket. And the reporter saying, Mr. Prime Minister, you just took my phone and you refused to look at that photo of the little boy. That was a bad look. And it did turn out that that photo was not fake. It was absolutely real because of the pressure that that hospital was under. But of course, a lot of stuff going on online muddies the waters. People believe what they want to believe. And there are many other issues that affect everyday people. But overarching, this uh, campaign is dominated by Brexit. And the Conservatives know that. And they're using a three-word slogan, get Brexit done, simplifying it down, boiling it right down, because people are sick and tired of Brexit. They want to get onto other issues. And if you at least get Brexit done, even if you don't think Brexit's a good idea, well, then at least the UK can move on and and look to other everyday issues like health and education and so on. But is there a concern there? I saw an editorial the other day about this, that that the obsession that, that, well, that's the word they used anyway, that Boris Johnson has with Brexit right now is at the cost of many other things. And you just I, I listed some of the other concerns that are on there right now. Uh, is, there, is there a case of Brexit burnout here? Oh, absolutely, Brexit burnout. And I think that's what they're relying on. So when Boris Johnson and the other supporters of Brexit in 2016 talked about what Brexit would mean, they said it would be a great new dawn for the UK. It would spell so many positives. And listen, eventually it may do, although most economists, uh, and not least the uh, head of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, Canadian Mark Carney, all say that it probably won't be a good thing. But put that aside for the moment, people are just sick of it. They want it out of the way. And Boris Johnson is now saying, get Brexit done. So whereas before the Brexiteers were saying, this is going to be amazing. Now they're saying, well, let's just get it out of the way. That's what they're playing on because everybody feels like that. Whether it's good or bad, people are just just want it done. And that is what they're playing up. And, and Boris Johnson, you may have seen online, tweeted a very highly produced parody of Love Actually uh, with him going to the door with those cue cards. You had him driving a digger through a styrofoam brick wall and saying, get Brexit done. All these gimmicks, but they make for great social media clips and news clips. And that message seems to be resonating just about enough to get him over the line come tomorrow. How did, how was that received? I, I did see that, by the, the Love Actually parody that he did, uh, which is very un-Boris, really. Uh, but uh, it was was it was it panned? I mean, because I, I, the, the reaction I've seen has been pretty mixed on that so far. Well, I think it depends on which side you're coming for, from. Um, uh, people who don't like Boris will dislike him more. People who like him will like him more. You got to admit that it was extremely well produced. It was. It was funny. The detail on it was um, really remarkable on how much they copied that original scene. So you got to give credit to that. They have uh, behind the scenes, the conservatives have some very savvy um, young people who have worked on other campaigns around the world. They know what resonates and they know that sometimes even something that's cheesy beyond belief is what gets people talking and they don't care whether it's good or bad it gets people talking people retweet it whether they like it or not and that message 
percolates through the voters and that power of social media is still something that a lot of parties probably, some parties, should we say, harness better than others. Redmond, is there a concern there about outside influence? I mean, we know in hindsight now that that there was a great deal of outside influence with the Brexit referendum a couple of years ago. I mean, they made movies about that with Benedict Cumberbatch and and others involved in that uh, and the impact that that had on the outcome. Is there there a concern now that there could be some uh, nefarious individuals or, or countries maybe even that could be involved in this? There is a concern. Actually, funnily enough, in the wake of that uh, Love Actually clip, you might remember from that movie, the man who played the prime minister in that movie is Hugh Grant. And Hugh Grant spoke about that clip and said it was extremely well produced and and jokingly said uh, the Conservatives have a lot of money it maybe explains where the rubles went. So that was a little <laughs> sly dig at the prime minister who was trying to act from the actor who was trying to be prime minister. Uh, and Hugh Grant is someone who is campaigning uh, against Brexit, but campaigning specifically for people to vote tactically, by the way. So it, on, he wants people to switch to the party that's most likely to beat the Conservatives. But uh, that's that's an aside to it all. There are concerns about um, interference. We, we, you know, we, we know, that obviously, in the Brexit referendum. There was a lot of suspicion around that. There is a report which the government has uh, ready, which 10 Downing Street, the Prime Minister's office, has ready to publish, but is has held off on publishing until after the election, which is obviously had a lot of people concerned. Why are they holding back in it? It was ready to publish a, a report about election interference. But of course, the keeping that back keeps it out of the public eye. People are talking about other things. We will find out after the election the extent to which there has been interference in the past, and we will find out perhaps throughout over the coming year what maybe what level of interference there has been in this election. Of course, you never really know the Canadian election. There were suspicions that mm-hmm. there may be interference then. It really didn't pan out to be anything like uh, as serious as some people had feared. So. It's it's something that requires an awful lot of investigation, an awful lot of work to figure out what was going on. And, and in the modern fast news cycle, it can be difficult to, to get that through. For those that are, that are just dead set against Brexit, and, and let's face it, Boris Johnson has his enemies too. Not everybody is a warm, fuzzy feeling about the, the prime minister, the way things are right now. What about what about the option, the other option, that being Jeremy Corbyn right now, who's uh, uh, the head of the Labour Party, of course. Uh, some people just think that this guy is not cut out to be a prime minister. Yet uh, some of the demographics I've seen indicate that, especially among young voters, uh, there seems to be a preference for Corbyn over Boris Johnson. Well, there, there probably, yeah, there would be a more uh, a preferable feeling about uh, Jeremy Corbyn among younger voters than Boris Johnson, for sure. Uh, but there are a lot of reservations. He, just like Boris Johnson, is someone who's extremely divisive. So pe- some people love him. Some people really have great reservations about him. First of all, he is sits to the very left of the political spectrum mm-hmm. in the UK. So uh, he will be pushing for nationalizing some services uh, that have previously been privatized. Obviously, concerns in the business community about that. You know, some people think it's a great idea because of some of the issues in society here in the UK. There are also concerns um, since he became leader of the Labour Party four years ago about how he has handled allegations of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. So Jeremy Corbyn is someone who is very pro uh, the cause of Palestinian people and the Palestinian state. And that 
has allied with a feeling that he has not cracked down on incidents, definite incidents in the Labour Party of anti-Semitism, of uh, incidents that have happened when people probably haven't been disciplined in the way they should have been. And that that, um, stench, shall we say, has followed him for years and he hasn't been able to get rid of it. He probably hasn't apologised for how it has been handled properly. He was forced into doing so in this election, but some people think it was too little and too late. But it, it is still going to be an issue. Those stories have been going on ever since he became leader four years ago. Oh, yeah, it, it is still an issue, and, and uh, Jewish organizations in the UK have been highlighting it. And, uh, and traditionally, and having done a, store, a couple of stories here in London earlier this year, we went to you know a traditionally Jewish neighborhood in North London, and you had people who are lifelong labor supporters. Uh, they say that uh, Jew, Jews in Britain gravitate naturally towards the labor politics or a a social democracy politics and they say i met one gentleman who 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 the week before had handed in his membership card of the labor party because he he you know with a heavy heart because he felt so upset about how he didn't feel welcome in the party anymore and these people potentially are voting conservative boris johnson went to a a a traditionally Jewish neighborhood here in London a few days ago got a great reception at least according to his social media profile Uh, but there is a definite issue there there are only a few hundred thousand Jewish people in the UK but just how that's handled and how it looks on the Labour Party and and Jeremy Corbyn that is a big issue for him. What about voter turnout? We were just talking about the younger demographics might be more inclined to to lean toward Labour uh, which is not unusual, I guess, uh, in, in many societies. as People are younger and, and probably somewhat more philosophical than they are practical because uh, they don't have the life experience. They they may tend to somebody who has that, that, that kind of a bent. Uh, but uh, the, the older demographic invariably seemed to be the demographic that, that has the highest voter turnout. What do you anticipate happening tomorrow? Yeah, well, they, every election, Bill, there has, there's always people saying, oh, this is when young people will turn out. It never really transpires that much. The last election, there was an increase in, in younger voter turnout, but not that much. And, you know, I, the, it's, it, people say it every time, and it never really happens. Old pe- older people will vote. Younger people will vote less, less often, and that is not going to change tomorrow. But if for some reason younger people are energized by uh, the policies put forward by one of the parties, or in particular Brexit, then that could have a, uh, an, an influence. But I have my doubts. Is there a, a, a rural vote here that, that, that is going to be a factor, uh, as opposed to obviously the, what happens in, in the larger cities? But when you start looking at, at what's going to happen in the countrysides, and obviously the, you know, the other aspects of the UK right now, whether or not that's going to carry the day. Yeah, and that that very much changes on the regions. So you have different regions of England, uh, different rural regions. So in the north of England, traditionally very strong Labour. In the south of England, very safe conservative constituencies ridings. Uh, then in Scotland, rural constituencies have gone from you know from. Uh, Liberal Democrats to the Scottish Nationalists. You have the Welsh Nationalists in rural part of Wales as well, a few seats, and every seat could count here. And then you have 18 seats in Northern Ireland where none of the big parties from Britain compete. You have all these different parties in Northern Ireland based on the future of Northern Ireland remaining in the UK or potentially looking for a united Ireland and and Northern Ireland leaving the UK. So all those parties come into play. One of those parties 
doesn't sit when it wins seats in the House of Parliament. So that changes the math too. So all, you so many different regions of the UK, it's so diverse in its politics that it really depends on where you're going. But yeah, those rural, I think it's less than rural, it's the suburban, just like, say, the 905 okay. in southern Ontario. It's That's where the swing happens. If that goes red or blue, that can decide the result on election night. We, uh, we happened to be over in the UK when uh, David Cameron got elected the first time uh, in, in that election. And... Uh, being a political junkie, of course, we wanted to stay up for the results. We were up all night. <laughs> I mean, we're talking 650 seats in some very close races. Mm. Uh, do you anticipate a long night again when the vote starts coming in tomorrow? I think so. They have um, a the three major broadcasters here, BBC, ITV, and Sky News, will have a, an exit poll published at the exact moment that the polls close. So that's 10 p.m. local. 5 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. So at that point, you know, if if it's a big win for the Conservatives, then we should know by then because those that poll seems to be quite accurate. But if they're sitting on the fence, if they think it's a thin majority maybe for Johnson or possibly a minority government, then it's a long night because it could, could come down all the way to the last few seats. And who knows, it could it could be a very long night. So that could be 6 a.m. local time by the time we get a result, maybe 1 a.m. Eastern. Um, and if it's just one or two seats left that, that tip the balance, and then sometimes there's recounts, and who knows how long it could go on. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, you've how many of these have you seen over the years? I mean, you know, there's going to be people that are going to say, hey, I couldn't vote. I mean, they closed the door to the poll. I didn't get there in time. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. But it's always an exciting night, and uh, it's a very, very important night, obviously, for everybody in the U.K., and we'll be uh, watching for your reporting on this over the next couple of days, Redmond. Thank you so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Thanks, Bill. Bye. Take care. Redmond Shannon, of course, uh, uh, from Global News in London as uh, the U.K. prepares to vote tomorrow. And uh, as Redmond told us, it looks as if it's going to be a Boris Johnson majority government. But that's why they count the votes. We'll see what happens. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, yesterday, the uh, new uh, deal, of course, the uh, free trade deal between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico was signed. Uh, I don't know which one acronym you're actually happier with. Uh, just call it an after part two, really. Uh, whether it's the USMCA deal or it's the uh, the Kuzma deal, uh, depending on which side of the border you're on, the 49th parallel anyway. But anyway, he took a, a very important step forwards with ratification. Uh, some of the amendments made to the tract have uh, been points of discussion over the last little while, so we want to uh, spend some time talking about what this deal looks like and, of course, the implications for it. And uh, to that end, we are pleased to welcome Alvaro Santos to the program. Uh, uh, professor Santos is a professor of law and director of the Center for the Advancement and Rule of Law in the Americas at Georgetown. University, and uh, he served as a deputy chief negotiator for Mexico in these uh, uh, talks over the last little while. Professor, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us on the program today. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation, Bill. This has been a long time coming uh, for all three countries, of course, uh, after, uh, well, I guess Donald Trump, just after he got elected some years ago now, uh, decided that this needed revamping. But uh, there was an inevitability to this, wasn't there, Professor, that at some point somebody was going to have to sit down and say, look, this was crafted some years ago. Things have changed uh, economically. uh, And uh, from a technological standpoint, it's about time for a a kind of a hit the refresh button on this. I think that that's, uh, there's some of that for sure, that the uh, economic relations uh, have changed, technology had changed, and the agreement needed to be updated. But as you pointed out earlier, it was a long and protracted uh, negotiation, so it didn't seem for a while inevitable at all. 
uh, it's really good that the countries had a, a gre- have agreed to a new um, treaty, a new NAFTA. Uh, and, and I think it's also important to recognize that there are significant differences. In some ways, it resembles NAFTA, but there are also a few important areas where it's different. Was there any trepidation? I, there had to have been, I would think, Professor, when, when you start these negotiations. Uh, you know, there could be some concerns about some of the parts of the deal, the, the previous deal, of course, but uh, there's always going to be some concern, I guess, about, about losing some of the things and losing some of the advantages that you feel that you had. For sure. Uh, and I think that one of the most important points to recognize is that this was a renegotiation that was really triggered by the Trump administration, that Canada and Mexico were not seeking to do this, and, and they were brought to the table because of uh, the U.S. Uh, administration. And I think one of the big reliefs uh, of the agreement now is that it basically dissipates the cloud of uncertainty of what was going to happen happen with uh, with NAFTA. So that's, that's good news. Well, and there's always language around that, which uh, I know we found rather disturbing here in, in Canada, too. And uh, when you've got the president, uh, you know, America first attitude and, and, you know, we're getting ripped off by every other country and every deal uh, is lousy for the United States. I guess the, there's got to be concern when you sit around the bargaining table with that sort of an attitude. But w- was that actually prevalent at the table with Mr. Lighthizer and others involved in that? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think that there was obviously a lot of uh, rhetoric uh, and a lot of sort of public discourse that, you know, the Trump administration was using for both internal and external purposes. And, you know, each country manages that differently. Uh, But I think that at the end, the negotiations were about the interests that each country had and had to make a compromise that was something countries could live with. I should clarify, though, that I'm no longer with working with the Mexican government, mm-hmm. uh, as you pointed out at the beginning. That was last year, uh, in 2018. So we, we, we are going to talk about the revisions because I want to get your opinion on those anyway. Uh, when the, new, the deal was signed last year, uh, we thought this was a done deal and it was going to be ratified. Obviously, the Mexican government uh, moved very quickly on that. Uh, the U.S. Congress did not, uh, nor has the Canadian Parliament. And of course, we've just gone through an election here in this country, and there's one coming up now. Uh, we were surprised uh, with the, the news uh, earlier this week from the Democrats in the House that, uh, that, that they like the ratification, they like some of the changes that have been made here, and they're ready to move forward on this? Well, I, to, I think to some extent it was a surprise because of the... Uh, difficult political climate that the U.S. is experiencing with the impeachment process. But on the other hand, the agreement had things that the Democrats wanted, and that we can talk about those those points that I think differ from NAFTA. And they were able to get uh, additional things that made the deal appealing to them. And so I think what we're going to see is that each of the different parties, that is the, the Trump administration and the Democrats, are going to claim uh, that they did a, a big contribution and that, you know, they deserve credit. So it's, it's for them, for both of them, it's, it's a good deal. It was very difficult to get information during the initial negotiations uh, over the last couple of years uh, from the media, because as you said, the, the main negotiators were pretty tight-lipped about what was being said and negotiated. Uh, behind closed doors, uh, we knew obviously there was some concerns about uh, some of the uh, the things supply management pr- program that we have here in this country with the dairy industry and things of this nature. But it it was pretty clear, uh, I think, Professor, that a lot of the uh, the discussion was around dispute resolutions and and just looking at uh, as we see now 
some of the amendments that are part of this new deal. Uh, that dispute resolution process was still something that I guess was causing some angst for some people. Yes, absolutely. And I think that the deal, as was negotiated a year or so ago, um, didn't improve uh, considerably on the dispute resolution system. And so this was something that the Democrats wanted to change. They wanted the panels that basically see disputes between states to be improved so that no country has the right to block uh, the establishment of a panel. And uh, from what we read uh, in the news and the communique by the House and Ways Committee, this was accomplished. And so this should be good news for Canada and Mexico both. When the initial deal was signed a year ago, and then we saw the signing ceremony, of course, with uh, the leaders of all three of those countries, uh, this obviously was still in the air. Was the, the decision made to simply let's go ahead and, and get this deal done and, and we'll deal with this later, or was this an afterthought? No, there was a, there was an agreement, and so the question was uh, whether it was going to be uh, ratified by the U.S. Congress. And with the change of the control of the House, it became clear that the Democrats wanted additional things in order to ratify it. And so that's why we had sort of a second round of negotiations that was really driven primarily by the U.S. political process. Uh, and some of those uh, items that we've uh, now found to be uh, the contentious items that I guess have now been resolved, uh, Mexico's labor compliance, uh, removing some and inserting new language around the trade pact state-to-state dispute resolution. How does this impact? Uh, because we, we obviously, in this side of the border, Professor, we're we obviously concerned more likely with the, the impact it's going to have on the, on the Canadian economy and, and certainly the discussion that we've seen on all the U.S. networks uh, about how it's going to have the U.S. economy. But w- where does Mexico fit into this? And, and obviously there's some concern here about, about the auto industry and some of the other things that, uh, that the, pro- the president was making a lot of, 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 of statements about. And, you know, it's time to bring all that stuff back. Uh, are you satisfied, and is the Mexican government now satisfied that uh, that they got a good deal out of this, especially vis-a-vis you know the the work that's already being done there in that country? I think so. I think the Mexican government uh, thinks it's a good deal, and and it made that very clear yesterday in the signing ceremony. It presented it as, a, as an achievement. Uh, I think that in terms of the effects that this could have, the most significant uh, change for Mexico would be the labor law reform, which was basically locked in in the agreement. And this is uh, an overhaul of the Mexican labor relations system that would allow workers to organize and bargain collectively and get rid of the simulation and sham collective bargaining agreements that have existed for so long. So this is a significant uh, contribution. Was that a concern? Uh, Because obviously that's something I know the Democrats brought up uh, consistently, but it was also, according to the initial MNAFTA deal that was signed way back when, uh, it was actually a bargaining chip that the Mexicans could use because of lower wages and the lower cost of production. Uh, Is is the new deal here, is, is it making Mexico as competitive as it was before when it comes to attracting those sorts of businesses? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that what happened was that the new government really brought in an agenda for labor reform uh, that was very consistent with what the U.S. was demanding uh, to include. And so there was a coincidence of interest here. Of course, there are certain concerns by employers associations that this would increase the cost of labor. But I think from a development perspective, this would be positive. Uh, because it would increase wages somewhat, it would also allow workers to have 
better bargaining over working conditions. And this could lead to uh, higher uh, purchasing power of workers that would lead drive internal demand and would force employers to innovate in their production processes, in their administrative or management uh, schemes, and in innovation in the product markets. I think they've relied for too long on cheap labor, and that hasn't been good for growth or development. So, yes, there is a concern that this will increase costs of labor, but I think over the mid and long term, this would actually be positive. So if um, this was an idea whose time had come then, I mean, I, obviously the United States was was interested in, in trying to improve that, that part of the, the deal, uh, and it was one of the things that they wanted to renegotiate. But it sounds as if the new Mexican government that was elected, of course, right in the middle of these negotiations, uh, was moving in that direction anyway. Absolutely. And, of course, it helps that this is part of an international agreement, and so it will be difficult for a subsequent government to roll back uh, that uh, reform, and it also made it easier for the Mexican government to pass that reform domestically in the face of potential resistance from employers or corporatist official unions. Uh, there's so many things involved, of course, in a, in a trade deal such as this between the three countries, but a, a great deal of the conversation, and I think a great deal of the concern and interest that many people are looking at has to do with the automotive industry, of course, uh, which has gone th- excuse me, through some pretty rough times in the last few years since the uh, the recession of 2009 and there's been some relocation there's been some plant closures and things of this nature and one of the items that i know got a lot of discussion professor and i'd like to get uh, your perspective on this were the rules of origin about exactly where a car is being developed and whether or not uh it's classed as as uh, as an import uh, you know because we know that there's so much uh, you know cross-border traffic an automobile goes back and forth oftentimes uh, a number of times before it's actually ready for market uh are we concerned about that now those rules of origin has it changed the the dynamic of the uh, the automotive market in North America? Well, I think that uh, I mean the objective of these rules is to stimulate production in the region so that it increases the percentage of the uh, value that needs to be produced in in the region in either of the three countries. And so there's some concern that this uh, would make it harder for companies to meet that requirement, those that are bringing inputs from abroad. Uh, or that it will raise the costs of of their production. I think that that could be true in the short run, but if companies devote themselves to creating more value uh, domestically or regionally, it could also be positive in the in the mid or long run um, as their production processes become more efficient. I think that that would be more of a concern for Mexico in terms of the mm-hmm. adjustment that this would require, mm-hmm. more so than for, for the U.S. and Canada. One of the uh, black clouds that, that was hanging over the negotiations, even when you were involved in this, and I, I, uh, we certainly saw it on, in the Canadian perspective as well, Professor, uh, were tariffs uh, that were imposed, uh, some would suggest arbitrarily, sometimes in the middle of these negotiations. What kind of protection do we have with this new deal right now about what some people might consider to be unfair tariffs imposed as, well, some people said, as a bargaining chip? Yes, and so there was, as part of the agreement, also a letter or a commitment not to impose uh, national security tariffs on uh, on, on uh, autos, uh, with the idea that this this would, uh, once you have a deal, then countries would have a favorable relationship uh, under new conditions, and and that this would protect these 
industries from the potential use of tires in the future. Obviously, that's a very strong part of this because there's a concern about the impact that that could have on the short term. Uh, but if it's enshrined in the deal, then we can probably rest assured that it's not going to be a growing concern in the years to come? That's the hope, yes. I, I, if I should say some... Go ahead. If I could say just one more thing that you alluded to earlier... Um, I think it's important also to consider that while a lot of the interest has been focused on labor law reform as as part of the deal and that the idea is this would actually help workers in the United States, it will help somewhat because competition would be fair. It would be the result of the you know bargaining of, of capital and labor and setting wages. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important to realize that conditions of work in the United States uh, need reform domestically. So let's not put so many hopes in that the uh, agreement itself would improve conditions of labor in the U.S. There is really a pending reform of the National Labor Relations Act and of you know rules that have really made it harder for workers to organize and bargain collectively in the U.S. And so I think that needs to be part of the domestic agenda uh, for, the, for the government. Well, and that rolls into a number of other, uh, I guess, companion issues, too, about environmental concerns and, and, and you know, the, the type of auto manufacturing, the type of manufacturing period, I guess, that's going to go forward and uh, the innovations that are going to be happening. Uh, does, does this spur the economies to the standpoint, from the standpoint, rather, Professor, that, uh, that we can look now for new innovations uh, and more cooperation now that this, this, uh, this burden of, of renegotiating is out of the way, that, uh, that we can move forward together now? Well, that is that is very much the hope that uncertainty has basically been put aside, and now it's a time to see how to best take advantage of these agreements. But at the same time, I think you're right that we shouldn't put uh, unrealistic expectations of the agreement. Uh, I mean, from Mexico's point of view, if we learn anything about NAFTA, is that it wasn't really the key to economic growth that uh, was uh, sold as being, and so. We, the Mexican government will need to do a lot more in terms of coming up with a strategy for growth and development other than relying on the new agreement to do that. And I think that's true also for Mexico and Canada. So it's a really good framework. Hopefully it also will show that uh, the countries are in a partnership and that the region is, is uh, yes, based on economic, strong economic relations, but that there's also uh, hope for a future uh, prosperity together. And, and that's a very important issue. I mean, given some of the economic uncertainty that's going on in the UK right now with Brexit and and the European Union, to know that uh, that that this deal now strengthens that relationship between the three North American countries is is a very positive aspect. I think so. Uh, and you know, you have also other cultural and historic ties. The countries are organizing the World Cup in the coming years. There's a lot of increasing you know relations between the three countries, and so hopefully this will put a positive. Uh, um, will put the countries on a positive path for a lot of greater cooperation. Certainly hope so. Professor, thank you so much for the time today and for your insight into this. It's greatly appreciated. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Anytime. Take care. That's uh, Professor Alvaro Santos from uh, Georgetown University, who was involved in the initial uh, negotiations between the three countries for the new NAFTA deal. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.